Right. Let's get into today's topic. It's a good one. It is our first Advent. <coughs> so, uh, as we begin this, I'm going to show you a small clip. Read the words, let it speak to your heart, and then I'm going to invite uh, a candle lighter to come up and we'll explain the first candle. So, let's see this next clip. Settle your soul. That's an interesting phrase for today. Not everybody's soul is settled. And that's why we do this. That's why today's Advent on the focus on hope is one of my favorites. Because, not just because it's called Hope Fellowship, but, you know, uh, there's so much tied to hope. And the word of wonder that we just saw, wonder is about awe and responding not about certainty. Certainty will get us into trouble because then we stop thinking. But wonder and mystery is what we are called into, every one of us. Our faith is constantly in wonder and awe and in mystery. So this first uh, uh, candle, I'm going to invite, I believe Felix is coming up, right? Yes, come on up and you can light the first candle uh, we're going to have a volunteer each week to light, and the first candle we light, it symbolizes hope. It's also called the prophet's candle. The prophets of the Old Testament, especially Isaiah, waited in hope for the Messiah's arrival. Sometimes purple's the color. Go ahead and light if you can. Give it a click and hold, and then 
aiming at that sucker. Yeah. Oh, look at that. That's a torch. Perfect. Thank you. Yay. All right. If purple is used like we are today, but we might change it up, um, it symbolizes royalty, repentance, and fasting. Colors matter. If you know anything about the Old Testament and the temple and what it represents, uh, the decorations, the symbolism, the placement of the items in the temple point to Jesus. It's all prophetically pointing to Jesus. And everything we're going to learn today is going to be pointing to Jesus in this Advent season. This next video clip we're going to watch is the, uh, we, have, we have five videos we're going to talk about. Actually, I'll, let's show the video first and then, then we'll talk about it. My pop had this way about him. It made me so angry. So I'd come to him with an idea. Could be big or small. Usually it was something I thought would spruce things up around here a bit. And every time, every single time, as if he were reminding me of something, he'd pat me on the back and say, thank you, boy. Then he'd go on about his business. It's just his way. You know, a lot of people didn't know it, but um, Pop couldn't read. Now, he'd have me do his reading for him. I remember that day that he came in. He, he, he came to me with a, a notice that had been uh, tacked to the front door of the inn, saying that the government was calling for a census. Well, I didn't have to read that all the way through to know what that meant. Yeah, it meant that people from all over were about to arrive in droves and they were gonna need a place to stay. I said, Pop, we gotta get busy. We got work to do. We need to expand our footprint. This little inn of ours is only gonna hold a handful of people. I even drew up plans, pushing for profits in every corner that I could. I was ready. Yeah, I knew it. It was time for me to take over the family business, become the innkeeper. I was 14. <laughs> Pop patted me on the back and said, thanks, boy, <laughs> and went on about his business. It wasn't long before Bethlehem was busting at the seams. Oh, gosh, we'd never seen so many people. And where was I? Yeah, I was washing linens and sweeping and cleaning out the stables. Picture this, I'm standing there in the stall, the door opens, I turn and see them standing right there. This, this poor man and his wife, and she was great with child. Yeah, yeah, she's pregnant, and Pop told them that they could stay in the barn. <laughs> he lost his mind. There the three of us were. Me, this panicked husband, and this woman in pain, and I knew what that pain meant. It meant that baby was coming, and it was coming now. So what did I do? I was 14. I didn't know what to do. And then, <laughs> in walks Pop. He's got blankets and water, and he's handling it. He was doing 
what he always did. <laughs> Saving me. And that night, he saved them too. But you could never convince Pop that he was a hero that night. No, I can still hear him. He'd say, boy, all I did was make room that night. The hero that night was God coming down to save us all. fly on that wall or in that barn. Actually, there'd be a whole lot of relatives of flies if that was true. But anyway, the whole idea here, what happened? And I want to visit a number of scenarios. And the reason I want to visit the scenarios, I'm going to try and get a clicker here. There we go. That's fine. The Bible does not record an actual innkeeper's son, per se, Obviously, we've heard the story enough times. Luke 2, 1 to 7 speaks to the scene just referenced. It was the night the hero named Jesus showed up as God in the flesh, in body form. It was the first time anybody on earth witnessed his majesty this way. This is where the wonder, the awe comes in. I wonder what happened that night. I wonder what Joseph was thinking. I wonder what Mary was thinking. Were there other people? Was there a drummer boy? No, we don't know that. But that's the joy of the many stories and songs of Christmas that have been handed down. They're offered in wonder, what if? And if, what if, what would it what would their perception be like? That's where that drummer boy song comes. I love that song. That happens to be one of, one of my favorites, um, just because I've always liked it. But it leads us to wonder. Luke 2, 1 to 7 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was seriously with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. <laughs> what if? The Bethlehem part of this story, I don't know if I'll remember to bring this up again, but do you remember there's a person in the Old Testament who kind of plays a major role in the life of Jesus and is actually part of the lineage of Jesus. Do you remember her name? There are only four or five women in the lineage of Jesus, if you count Mary. So it's four women. And usually women's names are not mentioned in lineages. 
There's a fairness, good grief. But there's four women. One of them plays a major role for this Bethlehem scene. Does anybody remember who that is? Pardon? Not Leah. Starts with an R. Ruth. It was Ruth. And Ruth wasn't even Jewish. Holy smokes. Listen, Jews were the most judgmental people. It's us versus them. Do you remember that? Yeah, don't touch or go near unclean people, as in heathens, as in non-Jews. And here she is, coming in, meets Naomi, and suddenly there's tragedy. There's a death of Naomi's husband, and the two, her two sons were married to these two other ladies. Ruth is one of them, and they both die too, and she's just distraught. And so she tells the two daughters, go back to your home. Oh, my goodness. And Ruth says, not a chance, woman. Where whoever your God is, that's going to be my God too. You can just imagine the sass they may have. But there was a witness of the character of Naomi that drew Ruth to go with her. And that brought her to the barley harvest time in Bethlehem, where she marries Boaz. What was his position before he got married? Ruthless. Sorry, terrible. Awful, just awful pun. But that's true. So the marriage happens, and she becomes part of the lineage of Jesus. There is a long theme strung here, which is part of the prophecies being fulfilled, which is the hope of the coming Messiah, which is what Advent is all about. I love it. That's why we're focusing on witnessing his majesty. Who could have witnessed the majesty of Jesus? Imagine how many saw Jesus not knowing who he really was and then realized who he really was. <laughs> oh boy, did I really say that to him? <laughs> or, like, imagine some of the Jewish leaders if they came to an awakening after they had you know, been really mean to him. What about the pastor buyers on different things? What about those extra-biblical texts that may not be in a certain denomination's Bible, but other traditions have it in their scriptures, but there are stories of what may have happened when Jesus was younger. Oh, they're not true or inspired. Oh, you don't know any of that, and neither do I. But they might be enlightening. They may be adding the wonder. Why can't they have wonder added and find legitimacy in the stories to at least create new pondering? We need to ponder more. But we're too busy to ponder. <laughs> I know about that. In this Christmas season, we're going to explore the lens of five different perspectives. First, obviously, the innkeeper's son. We just saw a short story on that. Now it's just a tease to let you think, hey, there are other ways to see this. Some of the kids' stories have a, a story of a donkey. What was the donkey saying and talking to all the other animals? Like, donkeys don't talk. Well, actually, in the Bible, they do. But anyway, the point is, the animals talking in the kids' story creates a perspective and a lens. This is storytelling. There's room for that. But that's not in the Bible. So what? Who says it has to be? Who made that rule? Mankind. There's room. Joseph, a perspective from Joseph. Mary's mother, never hear about her. Mother of Mary. <laughs> You've heard that phrase? Okay, all right. You get the point. It'll get there. Ah, you just caught that. Good. The shepherd's wife, we never talk about them. 
We always talk about the shepherds and, ooh, and all the stuff they do, but what about their families? Is there a lens that they may have had? And then, of course, the wise men. So those are the ones we're going to look forward to. Each Sunday, we'll play a different clip. And then as we move towards uh, uh, the end of the season, towards Christmas, I'll give you more instructions next weekend on what's going to happen for our Christmas season. Putting yourself in someone else's shoes is a powerful practice because it reduces your own judgment and judgmentalism. It increases empathy. It increases your teachability. And it increases humility and squashes certainty. This is why putting yourself in someone else's shoes, so to speak, is important. And the reason we typically don't is because we're in a rush. We've already arrived at a judgment about somebody, how they arrived at their opinion, and why they have the opinion, because it's against ours, therefore they're wrong, because we, we, we have to be right, right? That, that's, we, we need to be even more right than the other person. There's, there's this ego that fits in that is called... It's really the fruit of religion. It really is. We're talking the system of religion, not true religion, which is loving one another, caring for the poor and such. That's biblical religion. But the religion we're caught up in our world today is about power struggles, systems. It's, this is not. Jesus, if, if Jesus were to walk in physical form and look at all the churches today, he goes, this is not what I planned. <laughs> I just don't, I have a hunch. And it would radically cause us to rethink, why are we here doing what we do? Is it to bow to a system, or do we do it out of a willingness to want to come together? There's, there's a clue there. By seeing the perspective of others, we hear their story, which means we have to slow down, which means we have to take time. We don't rush to conclusions. Suddenly, everything takes longer. That's tough, because we're all in a rush. Several decades after Jesus was born in the manger, one of his siblings named James would go on to write a letter to encourage Christians about demonstrating their faith in ways that were pleasing to God. Now, that was his perspective from James's lens. He wrote, in fact, some, uh, some of the early um, scholars who were kind of compiling books of the Bible, you, you would be shocked at some of the books that were debated that Oh, it should not be in the Scripture. No, this one shouldn't either. And yet they end up in? Huh. Who gets to make those decisions? It's very interesting. Oh, yeah. Listen, it's not all cookie cutter. The Bible you hold in your hand right now, that's one version, I promise. It is just one. There's more to it. And so how do we know what's right? That's a great question. Let me know when you have the answer. <laughs> Part of it has to do with the mystery and the awe. And one of the conclusions I'm coming to more and more is, is it making Jesus and his love bigger and better or smaller and controllable? That's a good lens for now. But James is writing, and one of, James is one of the books that was contested. That shouldn't be in there. Book of Revelation. That, was, that almost didn't make it. Did you know that? Book of Revelation almost didn't make it. It was because it created too much trouble. <laughs> Imagine that. Still creating trouble. <laughs> they were right. <laughs> but there's still a revelation of Jesus in it. It's wonderful. I love our scriptures. I just think we, ha we need to have a, an understanding of there's mystery in the writing and the translation still. None of us have it all correct, and we have much to learn.
by reading multiple translations, you shift and go, oh, I didn't see it that way. Oh, that word was never there? No. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, this gets fun. When you start to look, of course. He challenged the notion of, if you believe, prove it by how you live. He talked about faith. Without faith, without works, your faith is useless and vice versa. Do you remember that? Unfortunately, here's what's happened with that text. It's been used like a baseball bat to control believers into how to behave and control things. Can't do that. As soon as it's used as a tool to cohere and make people do and say and believe certain things, it's not the Spirit of God speaking anymore. It's the baseball bat. Is there grace in that text? Absolutely. Read it for the heart of it. Jesus' little brother James eventually grew up to be a pastor of the church in Jerusalem. James dearly loved these people. See, if he's going to brag about a big brother, <laughs> he's got the biggest big brother to brag about. Okay, he wins. <laughs> James dearly loved these people. He had the privilege to pastor and lead. In time, they would be scattered all over the place due to the rising persecution of Christians in that day and time. And so James wrote to them to encourage and instruct them in their faith concerning how to live out their faith in some difficult days of their lives. And it was difficult. We don't have a clue about difficulty. And yet, we're in this pandemic. And some of us, depending on your age and how many struggles you've gone through, if this is new, it's like, oh my goodness, this is awful. But those who have gone through some other stages of life, it's not as bad as other stages of life and other world crises that have happened. It's your personal perspective. And these were difficult times. The church was being persecuted. People were being killed for their faith. They were being scattered. They didn't have buildings like this. They met in homes. They didn't have, well, I'll leave that alone. But yeah, you get the point. The idea of remembering then because he's, he's writing to them to remind them, to, so they remember. What? About what? The idea of remembering has been a theme since the beginning of biblical times. The idea of <coughs> altars and offerings, piles of stones, wells, and stories. The altars, do you remember uh, an altar was built um, in the very beginning with the, the two first sons? One made an altar to God, and it was accepted. The other one, and it was not accepted. And boom, one guy got killed for it. That was great. I saw a meme the other day. <laughs> okay, that's kind of funny. Um, the Mark, you know, it, was, it was Cain who killed his brother. And somebody said, well, to be fair, he didn't know he would actually die because nobody's ever died yet. <laughs> so I thought, that's funny. <laughs> Either way, the point, ha it happened. So it's not a good thing. Um, the piles of stones. So here's the example of when they crossed the Jordan River. What did they do? They were instructed to carry stones out and place them as a monument to remember. Why? Because we forget. Our generations forget. Our children need to hear the stories. We're not good storytellers in the West. We are not. We have much to learn in that field. It is and has been encouraged throughout history. Each generation remembers. Each generation finds their own way to commemorate. Different ways to do it. Which brings us to the point of Advent. I know we talked a little bit about this last year, but I want to remind us, because I guarantee nobody can remember last year's sermon. <laughs> There's an advantage to that. 
I'm kidding. <laughs> but Advent is one of those ways we remember. And if you understand what it is and how it came about, it, it might have a little more meaning. It's, it's very much like um, when I was growing up, I, I actually went to a, a, through Catholic church classes and such. And I saw the art and I, I began to see the stations of the cross. I was forced to kneel down. To me, I didn't like that because I, I was taught not to bow down before idols. And I thought, I thought that was an idol. I didn't understand the intent of it all. Then the Orthodox Church, they have lots of icons, images that are a snapshot of a story or person so that that individual is remembered for something, that, how God interacted. And we don't have that in the Western Church much. We've gotten rid of the icons, threw up a cross, or not, and we don't understand the value of those things. And I think it's worth revisiting that. And, or at least re reduce the judgment of it and find ways to find meaning with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that have different systems and ways of remembering. So this Advent thing. What is Advent? The word Advent is derived from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming, which is a translation of the Greek word parousa. Most know Advent today as a time of anticipation and expectation of the birth of Christ, the coming of Christ. That's why we have four Sundays to get ready for Christmas. This is not Christmas season. This is Advent season. We just blend it all in together. However, Advent began as early as the 4th and 5th century as a time of fasting and prayer for new Christians. The first mention of Advent occurred in the 300 A.D., at a meeting of church leaders called the Council of Sargassa. It gradually developed into a season that stretched across the month of December. Advent lasts four Sundays leading up to Christmas. The Advent season not only symbolizes the waiting for Christ's birth, but also for his final return. During the season of Advent, Christians across the world prepare for the arrival of the Lord into the world. Not all traditions celebrate Advent, but we need to know about it because others around the world are. It's a valuable tool to take us and distract us from the life around us and help us refocus onto what is important. The pandemic is a distraction from Christ. If you're only thinking of pandemic, only thinking of the crisis in your life and all the problems and relationships and all that stuff that's going, if that's what you're thinking about constantly, there's a problem. Yes, we think about it. I'm not saying you, you shouldn't. I'm saying it cannot consume your soul. Jesus is trying to draw you out, drag you out of that spin cycle of thinking and saying, look, remember why I came to bring peace on earth. Advent is marked by preparations for Christmas with houses decorated, carols sung, cards written, and gifts are planned. Next slide, sorry. Almost there. All right, good. The Advent wreath. We have one up here. We had a young man come and light one of the candles. This is a typical wreath. This is more of a Lutheran one. We don't use these colors, but it doesn't matter what the colors are. They're different tribes, groups, denominations use different colors. It has different symbolic meanings. 
And that, you've seen these before. I remember growing up, uh, we had one in our kitchen all the time. Uh, you'd think, well, that takes up a lot of room on the table. It wasn't on the table. It was hung from the ceiling with these ribbons, like four ribbons holding it, and we were not allowed to touch it. You know, but little tiny candles. You know the kind of candles we use for our candlelighting service? Those, that size of candle is what was used. But we'd, every Sunday, another one would be lit, and we'd, my parents were diligent about that. We had these calendars. My mom, I think my mom made it, I think, but it could have come from Germany, I'm not sure. But these, this felt uh, calendar with 24 little pockets and numbers 1 to 24 written on them. And inside was a symbol, whether it was a, um, a donkey, anything to do with the Christmas story. And there'd be like a flannel tree on the top of this calendar, and you get to pull it out and put it on. In order to engage us, my parents would put a treat in there. They seriously learned not to do it in advance. <laughs> so, <laughs> depending whose turn it was, we took turns pulling it out and putting it on, and the treats got better. Eventually, turned into quarters, and it was fun. But it was a way to remember and engage in a fun way. The history of this wreath is interesting. One theory is that the Advent wreath first appeared in Germany in 1839. Again, theory. A Lutheran minister working at a mission for children created a wreath out of the wheel of a cart. That's big. He placed 20 small red candles and four large white candles inside the ring. The red candles were lit on weekdays and the four white candles were lit on Sundays. That is a serious hazard. Fire hazard. Imagine if 24 candles lit by the time Christmas hits. That's a lot. But that was an intentional everyday thing. I thought that was really cool. That was new to me. Eventually, the Advent wreath was created out of evergreens. And here's where the symbolism to remind us comes in. The evergreen symbolized everlasting life in the midst of winter and death as the evergreen is continuously green. Love it. The circle reminds us of God's unending love and the eternal life he makes possible. And the Advent wreath is a symbol of the season with a candle lit each of the four Sundays leading up to <clears throat> and on Christmas Day. The light of the flickering candle flames reminds us of who Jesus is. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That is what the candles represent. In Germany, they actually put fire in the tree. They literally had candles in the tree. I think there were a few fires. <laughs> it happened, but here's what I didn't know. It was only lit for a very, very short period of time. It wasn't meant to stay on like we do. We just, okay, turn on the lights, it's sunset, okay, and then you leave the like, Christmas lights on all night. But this is an intentional candle lighting of the Christmas tree. My sister just wrote and said, my mom did make that calendar. Thanks, Daniela. <clears throat> all right. So this whole idea of the light coming, the symbolism is critical. Let's get the click one more time. Really sorry. Is it good? There we go. Advent candles are often nestled in the evergreen wreath. Additional decorations like holly berries, hollies and berries are sometimes added. The red color points to the, ahead to Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross, the shedding of his blood for our sins. That's the red of the holly. The, 
that's cool. I didn't know that. I just thought it looked nice. You know, the Christmas colors, just like the red-green show, same thing. There, that's where they got them from, but no, they didn't. They, they were thinking further ahead than that. Pine cones, I love this one. Pine cones can symbolize the new life that Jesus brings through his suffering, death, and resurrection. How many of you know that when a forest fire happens and those pine cones come down, it's not until that extreme heat hits it. That's when the seeds are released. It takes extreme heat to do that. And so through death, life comes? Oh, that sounds like Jesus. Exactly. Pine cones. There's a reason for them. And they're painful to walk on. Anyway, families begin lighting a candle on the fourth Sunday before Christmas, and they light another candle each subsequent Sunday. So why is the Advent wreath so special to Christians? The circle of the Advent wreath reminds Christians of God's eternal love for us. No beginning or end. We talked about that already. We can't forget that symbolism. That circle is important. The evergreen leaves in the wreath symbolize growth and life and hope, which is the first Advent. We can live and grow and hope because Jesus came into our world long ago and he continues to come into our lives every day, participate in our lives every day. Advent candles shine brightly in the midst of darkness, symbolizing and reminding us that Jesus came as light into our dark world. The candles are often set in a circular Advent wreath. The beauty of the candles is when you have your own personal darkness going on, there is light there. Whether you lit the candle or not, it's not you lighting it. It's Jesus being the light in you. Look for it. It's there. In Scandinavia, Lutheran churches light candles each day of December. By Christmas, they have 24 candles burning. Another Advent candle option is to put a single candle with the 24 marks on it. I've seen that online where the big candle has all these markings of 24 markings. So you only burn to that one spot and then you, and you blow it out. And then you keep going down and you do that for 20. That, that's kind of <laughs> practical. You know, it's kind of neat. And then here, what we'll do is we'll have a center white candle representing Christ, and that'll be the fifth candle that we light. Uh, that's another part of the tradition. Uh, there we go. The most common Advent candle tradition, however, involves four candles around the wreath. That's the most basic. A new candle is lit each of the four Sundays. Each candle represents something different, although traditions do vary. Often the first and second fourth candles are purple. Third candle is rose. Sometimes candles are red. See, it just goes, there's, there's not just one correct way. So you're not going to get it wrong. So if you want to have a, an Advent wreath at home, great. This is just, a, it's a teaser to having something intentional. It works. So what's the value of another perspective? Having the lens from somewhere else. Having the lens of another tradition that you didn't know about. Having the lens of the innkeeper's son that may or may not have happened. It makes us less certain and more open and teachable. How can it then shape our beliefs? our faith, or our teachability. Seeing the story through the lens of someone else adds so much value to our journey of understanding because none of us have arrived. We are all still growing in grace. None of us have arrived. And I think that's a really important thing to remember. All right. Let's wrap up. Would you bow your heads in a short word of prayer with me? Heavenly Father, Thank you for causing us to stop. To stop and ponder. To maybe even wander around. Wander around in our mind. And that brings us to wonder and awe of who you are. Thank you for this Advent season. Bring this to our mind throughout the week, will you, please? 
especially when we're in the middle of our stresses, when the chaos around us is almost unstoppable, could you be that presence of peace to each one? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we sign off, a couple of reminders. Online giving can be done uh, through e-transfer or click on the Hope Fellowship website. There's a donation button there. Don't forget to register uh, by 5 o'clock next Saturday. You can do it today uh, to join some person. And then don't forget the uh, uh, Compassion Benevolent Fund that we're rolling through uh, these next four Sundays. I'm going to jump in and say hello to a couple more people. Goshia, uh, good morning. Hopefully you saw your son sing for us. That was awesome. Um, they're down in uh, um, Atlanta, not Atlanta, uh, in Georgia right now, uh, a couple hours south of Atlanta. Uh, Mark and Joy in Guelph, good morning. Howard in Sorrento, B.C. Uh, and then the person from the Texas coast. That's awesome. I haven't, I haven't heard this name before. It's awesome. And Yeshua, hey, dude, good morning. And, of course, my sister says hello. That's awesome. All right, that's it, folks. Thank you for being here and participating in this time, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next week, and we'll update you with a weekly email on probably Thursday or so. That's it. Thank you so much.